I'm doing a good deal of gardening these days, and at the moment I'm clearing up the little rock garden behind the west end of the monastery. But I have one major difficulty, Hypericum. That's the Latin name for St John's wort, the plant which comes punctually into flower on the feast of the birth of St John the Baptist, the 24th of June. It seeds itself everywhere and is flowering everywhere at the moment. No particular harm in that, of course. The harm is that it hastened the death of one of my favourite saints, St John Fisher. When he'd been condemned to death by Henry VIII, he had to be quickly executed before the feast day, because Henry feared that there would be demonstrations and riots in protest on the feast of St John the Baptist, John Fisher's own patron, of course. So he was quickly beheaded on the 22nd of June. Thomas More, who had the same sentence, was allowed to live a little bit longer. Now, should I take revenge by cutting down the plant, or should I leave it in honour of the saint? He is, incidentally, a good Yorkshireman, born in Beverley. His first post, immediately after he took his degree, was as a priest in Northallerton. Why is he such a great saint? To begin with, he's a martyr, as he knew full well he would be. He and Thomas More stood out against the rest of Europe, the universities and other theologians, not to mention the rest of the English bishops, though Fisher persuaded the aged Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham, to stand firm, and he died before receiving the consequences. They all declared Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon valid. Henry's argument, and the king was no mean theologian, though Henry's famous tract against Luther, the Assatio Septem Sacramentorum, the assertion of seven sacraments, was probably written by Fisher rather than by the king himself. So Henry argued that since Catherine had been married to Henry's elder brother, Prince Arthur. After Arthur's death, not even the Pope could legitimise her marriage to Henry. Fisher appealed to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 25, the Leveret Law, that Henry was not merely allowed, but was bound to marry his dead brother's widow. When he was already in the tower, Fisher, in good faith, was tricked into the statement which led to his death by Richard Rich's statement that the king was having scruples and was asking for Fisher's private and confessional advice. When it came to the execution itself, Fisher was so weak after his months in the tower, imprisoned, that he had to be carried to the execution block in a chair. Wheelchairs hadn't been invented. But he still had the courage and presence of mind to joke with his jailer, if I'm not back in time for my lunch, eat it yourself. This martyrdom was only the crown of, of John Fisher's life. 
he was first and foremost a man of prayer. When he was imprisoned in the tower, he wrote seven short prayers for his sister, who was a nun, one for each day of the week, which show his peace and acceptance. At a time when bishops were often courtiers and politicians, and when non-residence was the norm, he stuck with his small diocese of Rochester, although it was normally just a stepping stone to a bigger and richer diocese. He was punctilious always in keeping to his schedule of annual priestly ordinations and regular visitations every three years. He complained that every day it spent at court was robbed from the diocese. And he was assiduous in visiting the sick, for instance. So his priest secretary writes, many times it was his chance to come to such poor houses as for want of chimneys were very smoky and thereby so noisome, and noisome of course means smelly, that scant any man could abide in them. He himself would sit there by the sick patient many times the space of three or four hours when none of his servants were able to abide in the house but were fain to tarry without till his coming aboard. And in some poor houses where stairs were wanting, he would never disdain to climb up by the ladder. It was an era when heresy trials were common, a rough and demanding time, when all too often heretics were burnt at the stake. In Fisher's case, he presided the ten heresy trials, in all of which the accused heretic was reconciled. He reckoned to dialogue and persuade the subjects, saying that anyone could come unto me secretly and break his mind at more length. I bind me by these presents, both to keep his secrecy and also to spare a leisure for him to hear the bottom of his mind. And he shall hear mine again, if it so please him. And I trust in our Lord that finally we shall so agree, that either he shall make me a Lutheran or else I induce him to be a Catholic and follow the doctrine of Christ's church. And the records show several cases when Fisher persuaded accused heretics to return to Catholic faith and be reconciled. Most of all, Fisher was a theologian, respected throughout Europe. King Henry's secretary wrote, as much as he fled from glory, so much did glory pursue him. As Chancellor of Cambridge University, he was re-elected annually, year after year, and finally elected for life. His great drive was the, for the education of the clergy, which at that time was grievously neglected. He teamed up with Lady Margaret Beaufort, the mother of Henry VII. He was her confessor and spiritual guide, and together they refounded one college, Michael House, and founded a second, St John's, with seven preaching fellowships. These fellows were bound to preach six times a year. 
He set up chairs of theology at both universities, which still continue to this day, set up in 1502, and they still carry on, the Lady Margaret professorships. He realised the importance of learning the biblical languages. He himself learned both Greek and Hebrew rather late in life, and even persuaded Erasmus, the most famous Renaissance scholar of his day, to learn Greek. And Fisher was responsible for more than one correction in Erasmus's first printed edition of the New Testament in Greek. When it came to the confrontation with Luther, Fisher was the leader of the Catholic theologians at the burning of Luther's works in St Paul's churchyard in 1521. Fisher was chosen to give the sermon, and it was later published in Antwerp, Cologne, Paris, and Venice, and ran through 20 editions in Fisher's own lifetime. Scarcely more than a dozen years left. It was therefore regarded as an vital tool in the defence of the Catholic faith against Luther. And this is the more remarkable in that on many points, even the theology of grace, Fisher agreed with Luther's early position before Luther was pushed into a corner by those who were investigating his case. Fisher was already in the tower when Pope, the Pope made him a cardinal, planning that he should be one of the leaders of the impending Council of Trent to reform the Church. To this, that monster Henry VIII reposted, he can put the cardinal's hat on his shoulders. I am going to have his head. Nevertheless, Fisher was still a dominating factor in the Council of Trent. There he is referred to as the Gloriosissimus Mater and at later at Mater. So that most glorious Mater and an athlete and a Mater. He's quoted again and again, especially on two subjects, grace and the Eucharist. Most striking is Fisher's stress on the mercy of God, especially in his commentary on the Psalms. This is a thoroughly biblical emphasis for the chesed, or faithful love, is God's chief characteristic. It's stressed again and again in the Old Testament, as when the Lord passes Moses in Exodus 34. Moses is hidden in a cleft in the rock, for no man can see God and live. And the Lord passes him, calling out the divine name, and for the first time explaining what this name means. The Lord, the Lord, God of tenderness and compassion, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and constancy, maintaining his faithful love to thousands, forgiving fault, crime and sin. This is Fisher's concept of the glory of God. And to these, he adds the New Testament image of grace as sunlight. As the Gospel of John says, I am the light of the world. He says, from the eyes of Almighty God, what may be called his grace shines forth a marvellous brightness as the beam that comes forth from the sun. And that light of grace steers 
and sets the soul to bring forth the fruit of good works. Or again, the beams of Almighty God spread upon our souls, quicken them and cause this light in us and the fruit of good works. Uh, this, of course, is against Luther in 1521, who put his emphasis on the salvation by faith alone and denied that good works were necessary or possible. Another lovely metaphor for grace is as a liquid without which, he says, without which I am blasted and smitten with dryness, like hay. This generosity of God and the working of his grace was vital at the council and no less inspiring today. By the grace of God, we can act upon our surroundings and bring the light of Christ to others. On the Eucharist, Fisher's contribution was so central to the Council that it is now quite familiar from our common Eucharistic practice. There is, however, one jewel which is normally associated with Pius X at the beginning of the 20th century, frequent communion. In Fisher's earlier works, for example, his commentary on the Psalm 22, it was his practice that the priests celebrate Mass daily, but laity often received communion once a, once a year at Easter time. In Psalm 22, Fisher uses the analogy of the body, saying that if the mouth received food, the whole body benefited. And in the same way, the devoted laity benefit from the priest's communion. That was his early, earlier work, Psalm, Psalm 22. In his great tome, De Veritate Corporis et Sanguinis Christi in Eucharistia, which was written chiefly to refute the reformers' teaching that Christ is present only symbolically in the Eucharist, he at least twice insists that actual communion makes a difference. He says, suppose two people who have the same faith, of whom one piously frequents and eats this incomparable food, the other seldom. There can be no doubt that the soul, the soul of the one who more frequently receives will be more solidly enriched. So the importance there of frequent communion. Again, he says, it's indeed true that we eat spiritually by faith and love. But unless we're strengthened by eating the body, this faith will soon perish and slip away. I'd like to end this glance at the great Renaissance figure of John Fisher, who was so crucially important at the time and to whom we still owe so much. With two glimpses, which enfold what seems to me to illustrate his character. One on his simplicity, the other on his sense of occasion. On his simplicity and directness, I mentioned earlier the simplicity of his prayers, the prayers he wrote each, for each day of the week to his sisters. This is typical of his prayer. As he wrote in his treatise on prayer, if thou wert mending thy shoes, or washing clothes, or what else soever, thou must pray, thou mayest pray. 
It is lawful for the servant, whatever business he is about, of his master, to pray in the court, in the marketplace, in the midst of never so many, never so great a multitude of people. A man may pray. St. Paul prayed in his prison. The prophet Jeremy in the dirt. Ezekiel against the wall. Daniel in the lion's den. Jonah in the whale's belly the thief on the cross, and all these were heard praying in very few words. And also his sense of occasion. Just before his execution, he laments to Cromwell, I have neither shirt nor sheet nor yet any other clothes that are necessary for me to wear, but be dragged and rent too shamefully. And despite this, he dressed carefully for the execution, saying, I must be gay this day for honour of the marriage. His last recorded words were, were from that hymn of praise, the Te Deum. In Te Domine Speravi, in you, O Lord, I have put my trust. So St John Fisher brings a new dimension to the war I, rage, I, I wage against the spread of that decorative and harmless flower, Hypericum, or St. John's wort. We may reflect on his steadfast courage in martyrdom, his profound but straightforward theology, his zeal for the true faith, but above all, on his noble simplicity in prayer. God bless you.